religion is pretty good at doing some things. <clears throat> I mean, the thing that we often call religion, uh, religion that we would make up. Uh, that kind of religion, religion that's merely religion, is pretty good at helping people to choose new behaviors. Uh, new behaviors that do more good and less harm than the old behaviors did. Religion that's only religion can motivate you to uh, get out of debt and stay out of debt. Religion can motivate you to plant a garden. can motivate you to give more money to worthy causes. Uh, these are all worthwhile things, right? Religion can <clears throat> help you to calm your body and even your mind by certain kinds of practices. Religion can motivate you to be polite to your enemy. But religion, that's only religion, cannot calm the storms of your heart. The storms especially of, I want control, I want freedom, I want security, and I want control and freedom and security of my own. I'm willing to pay a lot for it, or play really nice, as long as I can have it. But I want them, and I want them to be my own. Christian growth, real Christian growth, involves the choice of new behaviors, certainly. But it's not the choice of new behaviors in itself that causes us to change and grow as Christians. What drives Christian growth, what makes it happen, is trusting Jesus in ways you didn't before, or in ways that you weren't five minutes ago, that you did six months ago and forgot about now that you're returning to. Christian growth comes from trusting in Jesus and then living out that trust. So the question in this morning's passage is, that's going to be asked is, what do you trust him for? Who do you trust him to be? This is not a vague trust. This is not the kind of trust that simply says, okay, uh, yes, I, I, I trust you, so I'm going to kind of choose to feel more peaceful, or I'm simply going to choose to obey you. Jesus is a particular person, a particularly adequate person, and a particularly good person. Luke wants his friend Theophilus to know the reliability of the things that he's learned about Jesus. So as he, as he encourages and charges Theophilus to trust in the real Jesus, he's painting a portrait for us of who that is. And we get a piece of that portrait in four stories over the course of the next two weeks. We get two of them this morning. And uh, two of them next week as Peter brings uh, the word from the next part of Luke chapter 8. I'm sure he would covet your prayers as he continues to prepare for that. A four-part portrait of the authority of Jesus. One thing we'll see in all four stories is that Jesus is worth trusting because he has saving authority over all powers, over all threats. We're going to see Jesus calming natural chaos in verses 22 through 25 of Luke 8 this morning. Calming natural chaos. 
And then we're going to see him calming spiritual chaos in verses 26 to 37 of Luke 8. <clears throat> and something kind of unusual will happen when he does that. As Jesus calms natural chaos and calms spiritual chaos, we're going to see some people who are more troubled, <clears throat> more troubled by the authority of Jesus than by the danger he saves them from. So Luke's message to Theophilus and to us this morning is going to be this. Trust the saving authority of Jesus rather than running from it. Run to it rather than running from it. Because there will be an impulse in us to say, I'm more scared by his authority than by the thing it saved me from. We will see an example finally of the trust that runs to Jesus. That's mastered and calmed by the authority of Jesus in the end of our passage this morning in verses 38 to 39. We'll find one who's calmed and mastered and as a result is commissioned by Jesus himself. We can watch for those things as I read the text first and then we'll explore it together. This is Luke 8 verses 22 through 39. One day, he got into a boat with his disciples, and he said to them, Let us go across to the other side of the lake. So they set out, and as they sailed, he fell asleep. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. And they went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. And he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves, and they ceased, and there was a calm. And he said to them, where is your faith? And they were afraid, and they marveled, saying to one another, Who then is this that he commands even winds and water? And they obey him. <clears throat> then they sailed to the country of the Gerasenes, which is opposite Galilee. When Jesus had stepped out on land, there met him a man from the city who had demons. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had not lived in a house but among the tombs. When he saw Jesus, he cried out and fell down before him and said with a loud voice, What have you to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. For he had commanded the unclean spirit to come out of the man. For many a time it had seized him. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds and be driven by the demon into the desert. Jesus then asked him, what is your name? And he said, Legion, for many demons had entered him. And they begged him not to command them to depart into the abyss. Now a large herd of pigs <clears throat> was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened. And they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. And they were afraid. And those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people of the surrounding country of the Gerasenes asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. 
So he got into the boat and returned. The man from whom the demons had gone begged that he might be with him. But Jesus sent him away, saying, Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. This is the word of the Lord. Jesus, in these stories, steps directly into a series of threatening situations. And now, uh, very much on purpose, he takes his disciples with him. First, he gets into a boat. Uh, This may even belong to some of his disciples, in verse 22. And he says, let us go across the lake. Uh, This is a lake that is also known to us as the Sea of Galilee. It's big, big enough to be known as a sea. It's about 64 square miles. And because of its size and because of its topography, where it's, where it's found, it behaves like a sea sometimes. It's, uh, it sits 700 miles below sea level. And there are steep hills that run down to it on certain banks. And as a result of how low it is, it's set up in such a way that that one temperature of air can easily crash into another temperature. One temperature can run down the banks and run into the other. So hot air and cold air meet, and it creates these storms on this lake, on this sea, a storm like the one in verse 23. And a windstorm came down on the lake, and they were filling with water and were in danger. So the wind stirs up these waves that start tossing around their boat like a toy and they're on it and I don't know if you've ever been to the ocean where there are big waves and you watch those waves from the shore and maybe they look cool they look amazing and you might even think if if you're this type of person boy I'd like to get out in those and 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 ride on them um, boogie board or maybe even surf and it's amazing if you've done that you get out into those waves and you realize how much bigger they are than they looked like they were from the shore. Well, here they are, uh, and they're not out in the waves to play. Uh, They're being thrown around, and they are completely out of control. It sounds a lot like what's recorded in Psalm 107. Uh, This psalm records several different scenes of chaos, and one of them starts in verse 23. Some went down to the sea in ships, doing business on great waters. They saw the deeds of the Lord, his wondrous works in the deep, for he commanded and raised the stormy wind, which lifted up the waves of the sea. They mounted up to heaven. They went down to the depths. Their courage melted away in their evil plight. They reeled and staggered like drunken men and were at their wit's end. And they are. They're out of control. They could be three miles out from shore, and if their boat goes down three miles out from shore, then even the seaworthy fishermen in the boat are done for. Say nothing of the desk-type people like the tax collector that are with them. So what do you do in a situation like that? Well, logically, you panic. And if Jesus is there with you on the boat, then you wake him up so that you can panic with him. And that's what they do. They went and woke him, saying, Master, Master, we are perishing. I I don't know what they expected Jesus to do exactly, except maybe to panic with them or to frantically bail water. Maybe it just felt like it's just not right for him to be asleep while this is happening. We at least need to let him know. 
whatever in the moment of panic they expected Jesus to do, what he actually does is not what they expected. Verse 24, and he awoke and rebuked the wind and the raging waves and they ceased and there was a calm. He rebuked them. Here they are raging and whipping around, stirring up a frenzy and he says, stop it. Maybe not with that tone. Stop it. And it does. Immediately, and there's a calm. The waters are still. Sounds a lot like Psalm 107. <clears throat> right after they were reeling and staggering like drunken men at their wits end, then they cried to the Lord in their trouble, and he delivered them from their distress. He made the storm be still, and the waves of the sea were hushed. Then they were glad that the waters were quiet, and he brought them to their desired haven. And now Jesus does that. Jesus is able to speak nature back into order. Natural chaos. Jesus tells it to stop, and it does immediately. And it turns out that the waters were not the only things raging that needed to be stilled, that needed to be calmed. Or even the most important thing that needed to be calmed. Because he speaks next to his disciples. He corrects the wind and the waves, says, peace be still. And then he says something very similar to his disciples in the form of a correction. Look at verse 25. Where is your faith? Waves, stop your raging and be still. Disciples, you do the same thing. Where is your faith? Now, it's worthwhile to stop and, and, and look at that question in its context. Jesus is correcting them by asking this question. So what is he actually correcting? What does he see that shows there was something wrong with them? <clears throat> it wasn't the fact that they realized that they were in danger. In fact, the text actually tells us that. Did you notice that? Verse 23, they were in danger. And he's not telling them, look, you, you pretend that you're not, because they actually were. There's something else, though, that happens in verse 24. They were in danger, but what did they actually say about it? Verse 24, we are perishing. They, 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 they recognize a real situation, but then they draw a conclusion about that situation. And there's a big difference between we are in danger and we are actually dying. One is what's actually happening. One is our conclusion. One is what we've decided will happen as a result. And so the question is, what brought you to the conclusion that you were lost. What brought you to the conclusion that this, sim that this situation was not simply dangerous, but hopeless? Was there, disciples, anything that you failed to notice as you came to that conclusion? You were out of control, and so you were out of hope. Where is your faith? And where should it be? They they needed to learn some things about the one who was in the boat with them, including this, that Jesus has saving authority over all powers. 
They needed to know that he was able. They needed to know that he was more powerful than the storm. And it turns out they needed to know more than that about him. Here they are. They're rescued from certain death. There's a calm. And then Jesus corrects them with this question. And then what happens next? When Jesus says, where is your faith? After all this happens, we might reasonably expect them to say, well, wherever it was before, now it's in you. We, 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 we trust you completely now. And you've corrected us. You've brought us through. You are worth trusting. And that's not quite where they are yet. Look at their actual response in the passage. Verse 25, they were afraid. Here you are, the wind and the waves almost killed you. You've been rescued from a power that you couldn't control. And now the power that could control it is in the boat with you. And they're nervous. They're afraid. And they ask, verse 25, who then is this? they're starting to get this message that Jesus is more powerful than the thing you're most afraid of. And that solves some problems and brings up a new question for all of us. It's a question that, that might, we might even be embarrassed to ask. And it's the question, uh, are you afraid of him? Are you afraid of Jesus? This one who, who has greater power than the thing you're most afraid of, when you find yourself in his presence, does that make you somewhat nervous about him? Here's somebody with unimaginable authority, and we cannot control the way he uses it. So can we trust him? We sang about this earlier, didn't we? He's the ruler of the waves and wind, so what is he to us? What is his heart toward us? He's just given the disciples a hint of what his heart is. How they can trust him to use his authority for them. What a friend we have. He's given them a hint by the fact that he has just rebuked the power that was threatening to kill them. And there has been a great calm. There really ought to be an even greater calm in the presence of Jesus, not simply because he's convenient to us, but because he is so utterly trustworthy in his ability and in his heart. So the disciples have more to learn than the fact that Jesus is capable of calming the wind and the waves. They need, by trusting his heart, to have their own hearts calmed by him. Well, the second story, in the second story, the intensity is ramped up. There's more detail. In a sense, there's more at stake. It's more personal because this time the chaos is in a person, in a human being made in the image of God and with that image of God almost wiped out. This is Jesus calming spiritual chaos in verses 26 through 37. So Jesus and his disciples arrive safely on the opposite shore where they're met by a man who really is lost. A man who in many ways we could say is dead. He's biologically alive. In fact, bodily speaking, he's strong. He's active. 
but it, it is in every way a living death. All of his energy, even his supernatural energy, is spent destroying himself. Why is that? Well, it's because, in this case, he is controlled by beings that are only capable of destroying. We see in verse 27, he had demons. The devil, we're told elsewhere, comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. Satan and his demons are so divorced from the life of God that the only thing that they can do with their power is to destroy with it. So even when they give power, even when they give something that feels like life, its end result for those who receive it is always, in the end, self-destruction. Especially for those who are most dominated by it. And we see a graphic picture of that in this story. We find here a situation where multiple demons have taken control of a man they're dominating his thoughts and his actions and his words. And as a result, he, he's living like an animal. Really worse than an animal. Look at verse 27. For a long time he had worn no clothes, and he had, and he had not lived in a house, but among the tombs, among the dead. He's naked. He's filthy. He's out of his mind. And the noble image of God that he was born with is almost completely destroyed. The domination of these demons goes deep. He, he's not merely like a sock puppet who's constantly thinking, gosh, this is really inconvenient and they're controlling my body and doing things I don't want to do. They, they have so deceived him that they've caused him to to want what they want, to want what these demons want, to want what they offer him. And so, when, when they speak through him, he speaks in the first person singular as if he's speaking for himself. And listen to what he says to Jesus in verse 28. What do you have to do with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? I beg you, do not torment me. You hear what? what he's asking Jesus and what the demons are asking through him. Do not torment me. This is absolutely backwards. It's as if he's saying, you have power that I can't stand against, that I can't overcome. Please don't use it to hurt me. Jesus has been demonstrating his authority, his power, uh, through since he's been introduced in Luke. What's he been using his power to do? Never once have we seen him used, using his power to torment anyone. It's the opposite of what Jesus came to do to people, to torment them. And ironically, it's exactly what the demons are doing to this man. By selling him their power, uh, they have sold him to death. And they are the ones who are tormenting him. And it's exactly what the demons deserve to have done to themselves, to be tormented by Jesus, to be handed over to the eternal judgment that they have earned. And they've got everything backwards. As they speak through this man, they get everything inside out. And Jesus is here to set it back in order. <clears throat> 
nobody else can manage to control this man. The demons have, have given him a certain kind of power that nobody around him can control. Imagine what it would have been like to be uh, somebody who lived in his city, who had seen this man perhaps gradually be taken over by these demonic powers. And here you get together as a town council and you think, what in the world are we going to do with this man? Maybe he's grown up among you. You still care for him. You see him destroying himself and he's threatening to destroy your city. So you do everything that you can to control him and he can't be controlled. He was kept under guard and bound with chains and shackles, but he would break the bonds, verse 29. Under the control of these demons, this man was incredibly strong. He was unstoppable. He couldn't be bound. And in one sense, we might look at that and think, well, it'd be pretty amazing to have that kind of strength. In one sense, it looks like uncontrolled freedom because he can do whatever he wants. And at the same time, when we receive power that is divorced from the life of God, it's only able to destroy us. And so that's exactly what we see happen to this man. Every time he would break free, he would be driven by the demon into the desert. So here he is, separated from people, living out by the tombs, living in the place of the dead. And, and now a man lands on the shore, quiet unarmed, unannounced. And this uncontrollable beast of a man falls down at his feet and pleads with him. The, the demons who are controlling him know enough of what they're dealing with to be afraid. The demons believe and tremble. They know, they recognize uh, for all that they're ignorant of, they know, that, they know that Jesus has the authority to pass eternal judgment on them right now. Uh, they deserve it. And, and yet, it's not what Jesus has come to do now. Jesus has a higher priority now. Jesus didn't come simply to dominate evil forces. What Jesus came to do here is to rescue those who are dominated by them. So if these demons are going to be sent out of this man, we've heard that that's what Jesus has been telling them to do. If they're going to be sent, sent out of this man, then what's left for them to do? They, they, they are compelled to act. They want to do something. In one sense, they were made for a purpose and they can't escape that fact. And yet so divorced are they from the life of God that they can't do anything good. And so we see this description actually a few chapters later in Luke 11, 24 to 26. Jesus says this, when the unclean spirit has gone out of a person, it passes through waterless places seeking rest and finding none, it says, I will return to my house from which I came. And when it comes, it finds the house swept and put in order. Then he goes and brings seven other spirits more evil than itself and they enter and dwell there. And the last state of that person is worse than the first. They don't want to wander in waterless places. Jesus doesn't want them to come back to this man. And so under the circumstances, he allows them an assignment, an assignment that they're capable of doing, a destructive assignment. 
that will keep them from returning to the man that he's rescuing. They see it. We see this in verse 32. Now a large herd of pigs was feeding there on the hillside, and they begged him to let them enter these. So he gave them permission. Then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs, and the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and were drowned. There's a lot of unanswered questions here. Uh, Luke does not intend to answer all of these questions for us. He wants us to see the result. What happens? They're gone is what happens. This man is free. He looked like he had uncontrolled freedom before, but he was absolutely bound. Now, under the saving authority of Jesus, he is actually free. The raging has ceased, and there is a calm. When the disciples saw that before, they were afraid. And now there is a panic. The people who are there, the swine herds in particular, see the calm and they throw up their hands and run away. Uh, they run to the city and to the country and they tell people what has happened. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told it in the city and in the country. It caught people's interest. Then people went out to see what had happened and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone. They see the calm. Like the still waters, they see this man that they, that they knew. They knew he was uncontrollable. Even with chains who lived like a sick animal and they see him now sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind. Order, serenity, things as they should be. You, have, you, have you seen that before somewhere in your own life? You, you, you come from a place of chaos and you land in a place where oh, I, I see things as they should be. I saw that once driving on a road in the Central Valley in California. I had gone out to visit family and friends and, and was going out to a more outlying area, and I found myself driving on a street that went in one direction. And it was straight. And I knew which direction I was facing, and I could see where I was going. Uh, I'm not used to the way roads work here. <laughs> that are windy and fast and narrow and hilly, and often really dark, and it feels like I'm taking my life in my hands. And there was something for this Central California boy about the order and serenity of driving on a road that went one particular direction, and I could see what that direction was. Things as they should be. What's yours? What's your vision of serenity? Is it maybe a, uh, a quiet meadow, a white sand beach with clear water, is it a sleeping baby? <laughs> For some of you, maybe it is right now. Uh, for some of you, if it's not yet, uh, then that may be the single picture of order and serenity that you long for, uh, for an extended time. Whatever it is for you, when you see that picture of things as they should be, how do you respond? Well, you, you start breathing again, and you realize that you weren't before. It calms you when you see it. And that might be what we expect to have happen here. And it's not. It's the opposite. They were, verse 35, afraid. And when they hear how it happened, their fears are confirmed and elevated. 
And those who had seen it, this is verses 36 to 37, those who had seen it told them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. Then all the people asked him to depart from them, for they were seized with great fear. So here it is again. Jesus brings calm to chaos, and people respond with fear. Here, again, is a power that is beyond our control. This is even greater power than the one we couldn't control before, so now control is even farther from our reach, and we're afraid of it. We'll come back and reflect on that in a few minutes, but first we actually have a positive example of response to the calming authority of Jesus in verses In verses 38 to 39, there's one person in particular who doesn't run away uh, when he's faced with the calming, saving authority of Jesus. One person who's been both mastered and calmed by his authority. We see him in verse 38. It's this man that's been rescued. And the man asks for something really good. He begged, we see in verse 38, he begged that he might be with him. Please take me with you. I want to be with you all the time. Boy, what a great thing to ask of Jesus, right? And yet, it's something that's not fitting for the moment. Jesus wants this man to join him in a different way. Rather than going with me, I have another assignment for you. And here's what it is, verse 39. Return to your home and declare how much God has done for you. There is a time for sitting calmly at the feet of Jesus. And there's a time for getting up and doing something in partnership with him. There's a time for joining him in his work. There's a time for this man now to help answer the question for others that the disciples asked in verse 25. Who then is this man? Jesus has said, I want you to proclaim this, and here's how I want you to do it. I want you to go and proclaim everything that God has done for you. And notice the way it's phrased in verse 39. And he went away, proclaiming throughout the whole city how much Jesus had done for him. Who then is this man? I don't know that this man is recognizing that Jesus is God himself yet. But at the very least, what he's recognizing is that God himself is working savingly through Jesus. This is the one through whom God is providing salvation, and he is utterly worth trusting all the way, not only trusting to have authority over the powers that dominate us, but trusting him enough to be the one who calms us. Trusting him enough that we are willing to give complete control to him. Trusting him enough that that we don't depend on ourselves for our own security. Trusting him so much that we are willing to give up our false freedom to live under his authority. This man comes to his own city. Imagine him coming home. Imagine seeing him and asking the question, how did this happen? How is this possible? And he comes with a message of explanation. I've met somebody with authority beyond our control. 
and he's worth trusting. And I am an example of what he uses that authority for. He uses it to provide real power, to provide real security, to provide real freedom, the kind of power and security and freedom that are not divorced from God, but that live under him. So this man is an example of the fact that Jesus comes to do more than to still the chaos around us. A number of you have, have experienced that chaos this week, right? Probably all of us have in some ways, but it's been interesting as I've interacted with different people this week, how I've heard stories of, of, of chaos in relationships, chaos in life, chaos in circumstances, just a lot going on. And it's so important to remember, first of all, that Jesus really does have all the authority that it takes to still it all. And he knows how. And, and even more importantly than that, as Jesus takes us through those times of disorder, those times of fear, those times when we see danger and we think, I'm dying, to remember that he's after something even bigger than stilling the trouble around us. He is here to still the trouble in us. The trouble that says, I want power of my own. I want security of my own. I want freedom of my own. And I'm a little bit afraid when I see the authority that's as great as the authority of Jesus. And he, he, he intends to turn that around and to say, there's actually greater peace there. I'm the ruler of the wind and the waves. And I want you to know my heart toward you. I want you to know that you can trust me not only with your circumstances, but with yourself in all circumstances. He wants you to know I'm here in the boat with you. I'm here to rescue you from false promises of godless power. So what's the result when we're mastered by Jesus instead of those false promises? What happens when we trust Jesus in ways that we didn't before or in ways that we weren't five minutes ago? Well, first we find ourselves sitting calmly at the feet of Jesus. That may be the first thing that the Lord intends for you to do this week. Just, just to say, you know what? When it comes down to it, I know your power over my circumstances and I know your heart toward me and I've forgotten about it. And I'm going to come back and I'm just going to sit calmly at your feet. I'm, I'm going to say, be still, my soul. The Lord is on your side. The Lord Jesus, the ruler of the wind and the waves, he is on your side from the heart. And, and then having done that, uh, it, the time will come to, to get up as well to move, to bear testimony to the fact that, you know what, I, I am an example of what happens when Jesus exercises his saving authority. And I want you to know it as well. He's worth trusting through all of it. Father, we thank you for such a friend, such a powerful friend, such a good friend. And so we ask that your spirit would reveal him to us, that we would remember this portrait that you've inspired of him, and that we would experience his saving, calming power through this week. 
that rather than running from it, we would run to it and find him faithful. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.